Now, the word radical, when I say the word radical, uh, it's, a, again, it's becoming a little more culturally loaded, isn't it? But what comes to mind? Uh, depending on your generation, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting up there in a couple years anyways, and, and you may, you know, I remember when radical was like a skating term, like a skateboarding term or a surf term or whatever else. And that's, that was coming in as I was coming in, I guess, right? But it means a lot of things. And again, with much of language, words and meanings can kind of change and shift as the years go on. But one of the definitions for the word radical is revolutionary. I don't know if that was, that was the first one that came to your mind, but revolutionary. And so if we kind of uh, take a step further, uh, the, uh, the term or the phrase, a radical change, means something extreme or something substantial that happened in the system and it, it turned it upside down. A radical event is, is one that takes the way things currently are or the way we think we know how things are supposed to happen and it flips it on its head, never to, be, never to go back the same way again. Everything can change in an instant during a radical event. And this morning, we are celebrating the most radical event in history. Nothing has changed the world even remotely close to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, in one of his letters to the church, Paul makes this case that this is the most important thing that has ever happened and ever will happen. There were some in that church in Corinth that he was writing to that started to say that, you know what, the resurrection from the dead doesn't make sense. We're not going to... We're not going to believe that. That's not a thing. And so kind of out of that came, they would say that, that actually Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And you know what? <clears throat> it didn't really matter anyways. Now, before we kind of roll our eyes and look back at this first century church and said, ah, you know, they had so much to learn. There's a study done in England just a couple years ago where 25% of the people who filled out this study and identified themselves as Christians, said, I am a Christian, 25% said they don't believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus. This is not a historical issue. This is a present-day thing as well. 25%. And before we say, ah, those Brits, what do they know? Uh, that's all the way across the pond. Things are different here. There are many, many in North America who would self-identify, again, as Christian. It's not just, well, I think they're a Christian, but they don't do this. People would say, I am a Christian, and they would deny the resurrection. They might at least say that, well, if he physically raised, that's not really that important. It's more important that we learn the lessons of what might have happened if it happened. If we just have the idea of the resurrection, that's just as important as whether or not he actually died and was resurrected. And to this thinking, Paul says, hold the phone. You are absolutely incorrect. Here's what he wrote to that church that still ought to ring to our ears today. If Christ has not been raised, if there is no physical resurrection, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. And we should all go home because what are we doing here? That last bit was my addition. Paul didn't say that. That's how radical, that's how important, that's how world-changing the resurrection is. 
If it didn't happen, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead physically, then when he said, it is finished on Friday, he was wrong. It's not finished. Without the resurrection, we're still stuck in our sin. Without the resurrection, everything we believe about God and Jesus and salvation would actually be empty and pretty much meaningless. The resurrection brought unmatched change to our life, to our faith, to our purpose, and to our standings before God. And so this morning, I want us to jump into John's gospel and just see how this change started to happen, and then we'll see the implications of it as we go. And so we want to start actually at the end of John 19, which is, it's a Good Friday text. I know, we even read it a couple of days ago. But if you have a Bible, open up with me to John 19. We're going to look right at the end of that passage and then into 20 for the rest of our time today. So let me read for us. After this, after Jesus had died, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him, to Jesus, at night, also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Now, in those two verses, there are two important names. Pilate, forget him. We don't need him anymore. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Both of these guys, well-respected. We know Joseph, he... We, from other Gospels are told this is where Jesus was put, was in his tomb. He was rich. He was influential. He was, he was a part of the Jews, but feared the Jews. And Nicodemus. Now, if you recall, we've been, we had walked through the Gospel of John for a couple of years, so about two years ago. We are in John chapter 3, and Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in secret. He, he thought maybe something was going on with this Jesus, but he wasn't quite sure if he wanted to stake his reputation on Jesus yet. So he came under the cover of darkness. And if you remember John chapter 3, they had this conversation about, how do you, about being born again. And how do I be born again? I can't crawl back into my mom and be like all this stuff. He's like, I think you're saying something, but I can't wrap my mind around it. This is the Nicodemus that heard for the very first time probably the most recognizable verse in the entire Bible. For God loved the world in this way that he sent his one and only son so that everyone, everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Both of these men were secret followers of Jesus, but now something has changed. They've, they've stepped out of the darkness and into the light. It doesn't take too much imagination for us to look back at this event and say, okay, they, they just crucified Jesus for what he taught. The disciples all scattered. The women stayed close. Good work, women. Thank you. And now, all of a sudden, these guys are going to now stake their reputation on who he is? Something changed. Something big changed for these two. A little while earlier, again in John's Gospel, in chapter 12, John told us, the author told us, that lots of people were afraid to publicly follow Jesus. And Jesus responds to that this way in John 12, 24. He says, Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. So what's happening with these two? Jesus has died. 
and now the fruit's starting to come. The harvest of the, the, the response to Jesus' death is starting already. And if we're reading John, if we are careful readers of John, not even that careful, if we are reading John from start to finish, kind of in one sitting, we, should, we can track with what's going on, and, and all of a sudden this is a signal that, whoa, something is changing here. I, re- I remember Nicodemus. He's been mentioned before, and he was, he was arm's length, but now he's, he's giving this extravagant gift, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. The, the, he's bringing that? You can't hide that. There's a second change as well in these verses. Look at how Jesus' body is treated. Once he laid down his life, the persecution and the affliction were over. He had paid the debt to sin. He'd, paid the, uh, he'd taken the wrath of God on himself, and now his suffering was complete. This body was no longer being beaten and abused as the sacrificial lamb, and we... We read those haunting texts on Friday, didn't we? But instead, look at verse 40, John 19, 40. These two men stepped out of the darkness into the light, and they took Jesus' body and they wrapped it in linen cloths and wrapped it with the fragrant spices according to the burial customs of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and a new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. And so they placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby. He received a proper Jewish burial and not just a common Jewish burial. Not everybody got 75 pounds of burial spices wrapped around them. This was, this was a, a highly respected burial. His body that had just been beaten for hours and then nailed to a tree, is now treated with respect, given a a royal, a, a kingly even, burial. Chapter 20. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. And so she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and they don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out, heading for the tomb. And the two were running together. But the other disciple outran Jesus and got to the tomb first. And stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. And he entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded in a separate place by itself. And the other disciple the one who had reached the tomb first, then also went in and saw and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. More change, isn't it? The situation at the tomb now had changed. Mary, in these verses, initially assumes that the the body had been stolen or moved. She tells us as much in in verse 2. It seems that a physical resurrection wasn't even on her radar. She's just going to spend some final moments with Jesus. What was left of him? And then Peter and John raced to the tomb, and I don't know if you've seen it. I'm going to share it again this afternoon, but it, it has spawned probably my favorite Christian meme. And you know the ones where it's kind of a conversation going, and there's a picture of the solution, right? And so this meme says that, that John raced to the tomb, and he turns around and says, I won! And Peter says, 
Who cares? No one will ever know. And John says, everyone will know. And then he notes, "Ah, the one who got here first. Oh, the one who got here first. Now there's more reasons than a meme that this was put in the text, but we'll, we'll leave that there for now. But they race to the tomb, and, and John specifically mentions, the author specifically mentions the grave clothes in verse 7. Now, this is the second time in John's gospel, only the second time, that grave clothes are mentioned. The other time was, do you remember when? This is, someone got it in the first service, so he, I mean, you guys did really well at the start. Let's see if you keep up with the pop quizzes. When was the other time that grave clothes were mentioned in John? Lazarus. There were lots of Lazaruses. Good job. You did, don't tell the first. Got it. Good job. It was Lazarus. If you recall, when when Jesus in John 11 called Lazarus out of the grave, he came out, but what? He was still wrapped, which would be fascinating, right? Like, I can't even put my head into it. But Jesus' resurrection was different, right? What do we read? The clothes were there. They were laying where he was. The, the, the face thing, it was folded and put away. Something's completely different here. Now, we don't know too many, la- too many details about Lazarus, but we do know that he was going to need his grave clothes again. Right? He was going to die again at some point. But Jesus won't. He would not see death again. That, again, that face cloth, it's put on the shelf. He's done with it. He doesn't need it anymore. Take it away. Something happened when Jesus rose from the dead that didn't happen when Lazarus did. Something radical, something system-changing. Again, look as well at what John says. What does he believe when he enters the tomb? In verse 8 to 10, kind of tells us he believes that Jesus rose from the dead. And the next bit here kind of gives me great courage. It tells us that he doesn't understand everything yet. They didn't understand everything when they're there. He still has questions. He didn't write this book right after this moment, so he still had pieces formulating and put together. He didn't understand, but he believed. He believes. Let's keep reading. Verse 11, the disciples had left, and we read that Mary remained, and she stood outside the tomb crying, weeping. And as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been laying, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you crying? And she responded and said, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, and she didn't know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, which is beautiful, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, just tell me where you've put him and I'll take him away. If, if, if him being here is too much of an inconvenience for you, just, just let me know and let me help. But then Jesus said to her, Mary, And turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Verse 17, don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I've not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he said to her. Now, again, it's, fascinating that the disciples leave and Mary's left and she gets this, this moment, right? The boys are gone, but she's still here. 
Uh, this interaction uh, with Mary, the, the angels use it to confirm what John thought. He's left. He's too quick to go back to wherever. But they say, oh, he's, he's not here. The angels, uh, again, continue to sort of question Mary. Why are you here? Who are you looking for? And at this point, again, she still can't seem to, ca- to, to fathom that Jesus might actually be alive. She asks, where's, where's the body? Let me, let me deal with the body. She doesn't say, where is he? Like he, the door's open, he got up, he must have gone for breakfast. I don't know, where is he? No, she's asking for the body. She still doesn't have all the pieces. Then she turns around and she sees Jesus, who she supposes is the, the gardener, which is, again, an amazing thing. Because consider this, where, where does human history start in the Bible? In a garden. Oh, that's interesting. Where, where are we headed in Revelation? It's going to be a garden in the city of God. And now right here in the middle of the story, at like the turning point of the whole story, she thinks he's the gardener. She's not wrong, is she? Not completely wrong. She's not understanding, but Jesus is, in a sense, the gardener. He's, he's been at work since the beginning through the Old Testament. He came and did work, and then he's still doing work. He's planting, he's pruning, he's harvesting, he's doing all the things. Jesus is also the good shepherd, he told us, didn't he? Who calls a sheep by name. And when he calls them by name, they respond. They know his voice. We see that as well, don't we? When Mary hears him call her name in verse 16, she just melts and understands who she's talking to. She clings to him. She must, she must have, it's, it's kind of assumed, she probably like fell and like wrapped her arms around him, I would imagine. He says, don't cling to me yet, so she must be clinging to him, right? Don't cling to me, because I haven't ascended yet. This passage is all about change. Pretty big ones too, right? We watch the change from Joseph and Nicodemus from kind of following Jesus in the shadows to, to, to being out in the light. The change of the treatment of Jesus' body from, from affliction to affection. The change in the grave itself from full to empty. The change in John as he runs confused and looks and then believes. And the change in Mary from weeping to rejoicing. These seem like big things, but, but ultimately they're not big things at all in the grand scheme. They're just aftershocks of what happens. They're just, they're just the ripples that are going away from the rock that's been thrown into the calm waters. And the earth-shaking event is the resurrection itself. When Jesus rose from the dead, everything was changed forever, and it will never be the same again. So, what? What was changed? What was ultimately accomplished? Well, the first thing is that Jesus has overcome the power of death itself. He's overcome and defeated death itself. Now, birth and death are experiences that are common to every human being. Every one of us in the room has been born, and the mortality rate for humans is 100%. You cannot avoid it. Our lives are described in the Bible as a vapor, as a mist, here one moment and gone the next. We've just kind of, as a church, walked through Ecclesiastes, and the teacher just keeps hitting on this for us. It's a vapor. It's meaningless. It's all, everything's vanity. Da, 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 da. And that's kind of Mary's mindset when she goes to see Jesus. It's over, so maybe I can just spend another moment where they've at least laid his lifeless body. But it's gone. 
look at her transformation, though. In verse 2, she says, basically, I didn't see his body. It's gone. They've taken him. I can't find the body. But what does she declare in verse 18 now? I have seen, not the body, I have seen the Lord. This is huge. Jesus conquered death. He looked death square in the eye and with all his infinite power, defeated it. His death disarmed death. Every one of us is, is used to, whether we want to admit it or not, kind of walking around fearing the end. And boy, we've seen that in our culture for the last couple of years, especially, haven't we? But now Jesus shows us that those who head towards the end, if we're in him, we don't need to worry about that. The writer of Hebrews says that through his death, Jesus destroyed the one holding the power of death. And he freed those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Now for us, the fear of death causes us to try to escape aging. And we'll do whatever we can to feel young, to look young, to act young, to be young. Thinking maybe if we ignore death, death will ignore us. One writer says that the fear of death chains our hopes and dreams to the earthly transient desires of this life. If, if Jesus hadn't conquered death, then we might as well spend all of our energy eating and drinking and being merry because tomorrow we might die. But because Jesus has conquered death, we can live for the next life, for the eternal life, not this temporary one. And that's why materialism and Christianity cannot coexist. Because material, materialism is pursuing happiness by accumulating stuff and experiences and whatever else. It's saying, if I just get this new thing, I'll be happy. If I just have this much stuff, if I have this much in my bank account, if I have this, that'll bring me joy and meaning and purpose and identity, and that's what I'm headed for. But Christianity is all about giving up all of that and pursuing happiness in Jesus. For us as followers of Jesus, his resurrection brings a revolutionary change to our perspective. We don't live for the seen anymore, but we live for the unseen. Because Jesus conquered death and because he lives forever, death no longer has a claim on us, and we're free to live for what lasts. And we also are able to take the things that we do have, the good gifts that God has given us in this life, and we can live with them with open hands being generous, recognizing that, man, I'm blessed. I've got breath. I've got, a, I've got a tie that many of you had commented on that I finally wore a tie to church. Thank you very much. I, I, I've got these great gifts, but I'm going to hold them loosely because if someone else wants them, great, because God is greater and Jesus is better. And when I get there, whatever. I'll have everything I've ever wanted, ever needed. And that's what I look forward to. The first radical change was that Jesus defeated death. The second thing that was accomplished by Jesus' resurrection was the change in position of his disciples. Here's what I mean by that. In John's gospel that we've been reading from, Jesus refers to God as Father 108 times. That's a lot. 21 chapters, 108 times, that's a lot. 27 of those times, he refers to God as my Father. Jesus can do that. He's Jesus. 71 times he talks about the Father. But look again at verse 17. What does he say to Mary? I'm ascending. I'm, I'm going back to my Father and your Father. 
Oh, wait a minute. I'm going to my God and your God. This is the only time he refers to God as Mary's father, as the disciples' father. Only here, after the resurrection. It's the only time in John, even, that he calls the disciples brothers. All of a sudden, this is, this is a big change. When Jesus rises from the dead, the position of his followers have, has, has radically changed. No longer are they cut off from God. No longer are they enemies of God. No longer are they dead in their sins, but they're family. And that's, that's a big, big deal. Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection ushers in a new era where his followers are adopted into the family with God as father and Jesus as brother. And it's only when God does a work in our hearts and gives us the gift of faith that we become his children. We have to believe in Jesus to be a part of the family. That's what we have to do. Fortunately, that's pretty much all we have to do. Believe. And then out of that comes obedience and those sorts of things. But Jesus had to do something first. He had to pay with his perfect life. He had to, to take the, the, the cost of those sins on himself so that we could be declared righteous and stand before God. It was his sacrifice that had to be accepted by God so that we could be forgiven. And that's why after he rose from the dead, his first words to Mary, which she passed along to the disciples, that they were now, by faith, part of the family. Because of Jesus, we can be called children of God. I know that we're kind of a reserved group here sometimes, but that's something, if I can get an amen on anything, that's, this is a good one. We are children of God. All right, thank you. We've got, we're going to keep working on that. Children of God. And there are some massive implications, and there are some big promises. The first is this, the promise of love. We're now his children. It doesn't matter how good your earthly parents were or are. Parents don't elbow your kids. Kids don't elbow your parents. It doesn't matter how, how well that's worked here in this life. This is better that God is our Father. It doesn't matter how great or how strained your relationship with your earthly father has been. I know that, that I, I've got issues. If we're all honest, we probably, every one of us has some issues with our parents and with our fathers. And sometimes it's really easy for me to project my experience with my earthly father onto God and say, well, I don't know, my, I've, I've got these hurts and pains from, from my dad, so I'm going to expect God's going to hurt me the same way. My, my dad held me to this standard, rightly or wrongly, and so I, I'm going to expect that God's got to hold me to some standard too, and I'm probably not going to make it. And so, right, like all that we can project that on God. But no matter your relationship with your earthly father, we now have one with a perfect, perfect heavenly father. His love for you won't ebb and flow based on your performance and whether or not he's had his coffee in the morning. His love for you won't change based on the marks you get at school or, or, or the time of the day. He will love you enough to discipline you when you've earned discipline and when you have sinned. But he does this because he knows you 
And he wants what's best for you. And he's leading you and guiding you and shaping you who he, shaping you into who created you to be. The promise of love. The second is the promise of inheritance. The immeasurable riches of God are now eternally ours as well. No longer do we have to look at the things of this world to, to collect the things that we can see and touch and taste and feel of this world and go to those things to find our meaning and purpose and identity and fulfillment. But we look forward to the day when we get to go and be with God and that eternal treasure chest of, of everything that our little hearts desire, those desires that God, good desires that God put into our hearts will be there the promise of love, the promise of inheritance, and finally, the promise of acceptance. Jesus told Mary, don't cling to me because I haven't yet ascended to the Father. And when he did that, when he did go back to the Father, he sat down at God's right hand at the place of authority, the place of honor, because that's where he is, we have the assurance that we will be accepted into the Father's house. Because of Jesus, now, we didn't become God's children because of anything that we have done or some list that we may someday accomplish. But we became God's children because of what Jesus did. And therefore, our confidence in our standing before God and our ability to approach God, Hebrews writes about that we should approach the throne of grace with, with boldness. It doesn't rest on what I've done. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. But it rests on what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. God accepted Jesus, and so by us putting our faith in him, he will accept us. When we follow Jesus, our identity completely chains, changes. We're no longer just following the ways of this world or, or what the Bible calls, we're not sons and daughters of Adam anymore. We're not stuck in that, that, that slaver, slavery to the things of this world, but we're adopted into the family of God with all the rights of children. And so our meaning, our purpose, our identity, and our value no longer come from what anyone around us says about us, which is something, I don't know about you, but that's something I wrestle with, especially having to stand up here on a Sunday and say, here's what I think the Bible says. I hope you like it. I hope you like me. Forget you. It's about Jesus. I love you. I love you all. I do. But it's not about that. Our meaning, purpose, and identity doesn't come from what anyone else can say about us or from the stuff that we collect or the things that we've accomplished in this world, but it comes from what Jesus has done. We are completely made new. See, the resurrection that we celebrate Easter Sunday, it has changed everything. And we cannot be wishy-washy about the empty tomb. We believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead was vindicated by the Father, secured our salvation, and brought us into the family of God. This is the most radical event in the history of the world. And this is not just something that the church kind of concocted when we were far enough away from the original event that people would have forgotten. They just said, oh, by the way, did you hear that that happened? And they started passing these fake messages around. This is a historical event that has been attested to by not just Christian scholars and historians, but secular scholars and historians, guys that want nothing to do with the raised Jesus will still say, no, listen, something happened here. We, we, you cannot, cannot be a, a reputable historian and say that tomb wasn't empty. 
that tomb, yeah, that tomb wasn't empty. This is the defining moment of history. Now listen, maybe you're joining us for the first time, whether it's online or here, and welcome. Maybe this is the first time you've heard this message. Maybe it's just kind of sinking in a little bit different or for the first time. Maybe you've never really thought about it too much. You've grown up around church, and it's like every Sunday the preacher goes to this text. And Maybe you heard it as a kid growing up and just kind of put it on the shelf because things got busy. Maybe this morning you just want to renew that commitment and take that stand, step out of darkness and into light like Nicodemus and Joseph did and take a stand again. Where, wherever you are on that spectrum, I would invite you to learn from the author John's example in this passage. He didn't have it all figured out. He didn't have the implications of what he'd just seen all kind of fit into the filing system of his brain, but he believed and he moved forward he still had no doubt he had questions and doubts and, and things that needed to be answered. And that's great. That's fine. You can have questions. You can have doubts and still follow Jesus. They move forward. So I would invite you to do the same. How do we take that step? How do we take that first step and believe Jesus? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote to another church. He wrote to the church in Rome and said, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You're in. You're in the family. That doesn't mean that's all you do. Of course, there's implications to that yes, and then how it impacts and affects your life, but it is as simple as saying yes to Jesus. And so this morning, I want to invite you to give your yes to Jesus. To say, yes, I believe. Help me to understand the places I don't yet. Yes, I, I believe. Help my unbelief in these areas here. Help me to know you more each day. To say, yes, I believe in the resurrection. This isn't some myth, but this is something that we can stake our whole lives on. To say, yes, I believe, Jesus, that you've conquered death and you've adopted me into the family. And again, I may not fully understand that in this moment, but I want to believe and help me grow in that. See, without the resurrection, there is no gospel. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. The gospel is the good news of Jesus coming to redeem his people, to rebuild the relationship that we need and we're created for with God. And the best part of the good news is that Jesus won. The death is defeated and eternal life is ours through him. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning. I thank you that we can celebrate with generations and generations and generations and generations of brothers and sisters that have been adopted into your family. Thank you for your work on the cross, that you went to pay the price for my sin, and that by raising again, you have conquered the consequences for my sin. I thank you that you have adopted me into your family that I can call you brother, that you call me brother. Jesus, for anyone who's wrestling with whether or not to, to give their first yes this morning, I, I pray that you would comfort them, that you would speak to them, that you would draw their hearts to you. And so that again, today, we would say yes to you. Jesus, we pray these things in your good, good name. Amen.